Welcome to the Truth Wars Podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. Olin has recently written his first book, which is titled, What to Do with Worry, Why Playing God Never Works. You can find Olin's book on ChristianFocus.com and Amazon.com. Now, here's Olin. Okay, what I want to do now is look kind of at the end of Jesus' ministry on earth and talk about the pitfalls of discipleship, uh, ways that you can screw it up. Um, and in some sense, we're going to be making full circle back to where we ended, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a second. Let me just read a couple of quotes before we get started. This is from Billy Graham. In response to the question, if you were a pastor of a large church in a principal city, what would be your plan of action? Mr. Graham replied, I think one of the first things I would do would be to get a small group of 8 or 10 or 12 people around me that would meet a few hours a week and pay the price. It would cost them something in time and effort. I would share with them everything I have over a period of years. Then I would actually have 12 ministers among the lay people who in turn could take 8 or 10 or 12 more and teach them. I know one or two churches that are doing that, and that is revolutionizing the church. Christ, I think, set the pattern. He spent most of his time with 12 men. He didn't spend it with a great crowd. In fact, every time he had a great crowd, it seems to me that there weren't too many results. The great results, it seems to me, came in his personal interview and in the time he spent with his 12. Just think about that. Maybe the greatest evangelist of you know, the last century, uh, known for speaking to crowds of tens of thousands. He was gifted at it. He was good at it. And yet he said... Here's what you ought to do. Robert Coleman, again, the master plan of evangelism. Building men and women is not easy. It requires constant personal attention, much like a father gives to his children. We fail, not because we do not try to do something, but because we let our little efforts become an excuse for not doing more. The costly principles of leadership development and reproduction seem to have been submerged beneath the easier strategy of mass recruitment. The nearsighted objective of popular recognition generally took precedent over the long-range goal of reaching the world. Occasionally, as in times of great spiritual revival, the principles of Jesus' method have come to the fore, but to this observer of church history, such periods have been short-lived and have never captured the imagination of the vast majority of churchmen. The high priestly prayer of Christ in the 17th chapter of John is especially meaningful in this connection. Of the 26 verses in the prayer, 14 relate immediately to the 12 disciples. Just think about your own personal prayer life. How much of your own personal prayer life do you spend praying for the men or the women that you're committed to discipling or mentoring? It ought to be some sort of significant chunk, I think, based off of what we just looked at Jesus. So, three points, okay? And if you'll remember, two of these are going to be the same points that we had in the very first time we were together, okay? What is good discipleship? It's intensive, it's interactive, and the third one, it's intimate. Okay? And I'll explain what I mean as we get there. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 26, okay? The last night when he's arrested. So if you got your Bibles, Matthew chapter 26, and let's actually start in verse 21. As they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. Being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. And he answered, He who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. The Son of Man is going to go, just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who was betraying him, said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. 
While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had given, when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, so you can incorporate hymn singing in your D group if you'd like to do that. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, this very night before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same thing too. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. And then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again, and he went away, and he prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. And he came to the disciples and said, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up and let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Okay? I'm going to say each of these points in a positive way and in a um, negative way. So cause we're looking at pitfalls. Okay? So the positive thing is to be intensive, okay? to go deep with a few. So what's the negative? You can have too many people. You can have too many people. You can try to have too big of a group. You know, well, how big is too big? I'd say anything over 12 is too big of a group, okay? If, if, if Jesus stopped at 12, so should you. And probably it should be even smaller. We've already talked about this. It was really only the three that got the deepest goods from Jesus. I think there's a lot of wisdom there, okay? Uh, small groups, I think it makes sense, again, that we're looking at Jesus' discipleship. We looked a little bit at John the Baptist's discipleship, but it is important. I think it was always same gender, I do think that's wise. Titus 2 talks about the old women discipling the younger women, mentoring them. That's the best way to do it. Um, think about it like spiritual parenting. Okay? Why? This allows you to go deeper with questions and answers and rebuke and talking about sin. And the bigger the group is, right? I mean, like right now, I mean, I kind of made that joke earlier, I think, in the last times. Like, think about your deepest sin struggle and now tell your neighbor. And probably somebody almost had a heart attack, you know, based on who you're sitting by. But if it was just you and your best friend, it's like, well, I feel comfortable talking about my deep sin struggle with my best friend. But with the person from Virginia that I just met last night, I don't feel so comfortable talking to that person. And, and you shouldn't. That's, okay? So the smaller, more intimate gatherings, you can go much deeper into the basement of the heart where real change happens. The bigger the group, oftentimes the more surface level the group. That's not always true, but it's usually true. The second thing, be interactive. What's the pitfall here? Too much formal teaching. Again, please hear me. I'm not against formal teaching. I hope I've proven that over the past two days. 
if you have the gift of teaching, great, use it. Just don't use it that much in your D group. Don't show up with a 15-minute devotional from Galatians you're going to give them every week. Again, can that ever be the best thing? Yeah. But again, I think far too many churches and ministries, people are getting plenty of upfront content. And the reality is, guys, even if they're not, they got this little thing called the iPhone, and anytime they want, they can go find the best sermons in the world at their fingertips and listen to it. What they need from you is more of the dialogue, more of the engaging, more of the asking, more of the personalizing. I did a study one time through the Gospels, and what I was trying to discern was this. When was Jesus' teaching something that it seemed like he had planned, I'm going to teach this sermon now, like the Sermon on the Mount. seems like that was something packaged that he planned, I'm going to take the Old Testament law and I'm going to break it down and apply And when was his teaching more of a response to a random conversation that seemed to happen on the highway, right? Hey, what were you guys arguing about? Who was the greatest? Oh, let me tell you about what it means to be the great. You understand? It was about 50-50. So the greatest teacher of all time, the record of his life is about 50% of his content delivery seems like it was formal, prepared sermons. And the other 50% seems like it was random, off-the-cuff, as you were going and conversations were coming up. Does that make sense? You know, I... We just went through kind of the giving season at Briarwood. Briarwood's known for being a, a, a very giving church, sacrificial and all this, you know. But I had a couple, you know. And this, the wife, for sure, I knew, grew up at Briarwood. And, you know, they called me. They said, okay, help us understand this whole tithe thing and then giving the missions above. And, you know, there's questions about do you tithe off the gross? Do you tithe off the net? There's not a verse on that. They need somebody personal to take the principle of truth, and then practically help them apply. And that's what good discipleship is. We're taking truths like this. I mean, you see Jesus doing this in this text. He takes this old prophecy from Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, that probably all these men had read about striking the shepherd and the sheep will fall. They didn't know what that meant, almost certainly. And he said, let me tell you what it means. That's, and, 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 and it wasn't just, let me tell you what it means so you'll pass your seminary test. He's like... Let me tell you what it means because this is about to happen right in front of your face. It was a very personalized application. Does that make sense? And that's what good discipleship is. We're taking this ancient text that a lot of times seems like literal Greek and Hebrew to the students that we're teaching it to and saying, no, no, this thing is living and active. It really does matter and make a difference in your personal life. It can help you have wisdom even in 21st century America. We've got to be experts with that. One of the things I used to do with my kids when they were little, we would, uh, we, we would always go out to eat after church. And we'd get there, and I'd say, um, what would y'all learn today at church? And you know, just something you remember anything. You know, in, in the beginning, I don't remember anything, Dad. It was all so boring. And so I just got this new thing. I said, great. You don't remember anything. You drink water, you know, at lunch. You want to get a Sprite or a Coke or something? You better remember something. And it was just amazing how, you know, then they're like fighting, you know, because they don't want somebody else to take their point before they can share it because you can't copy your brother and sister. Now, that's, that's parenting advice again. Maybe that's bad parenting advice. I don't know. But find ways to make sure that your students are digesting all the truth that they're hearing. I remember at the national conference that Kim was referring to uh, 11 years ago, we had a lot of great speakers there. Matt Chandler was there and spoke. He gave a great sermon. Okay, I can still remember some of it from Romans chapter 12. And one of the young men that I was helping mentoring, you know, I'm asking him right after that. I said, man, what's been your favorite part of conference so far? He's like, dude, 
Matt Chandler's. That was the best sermon. I think it's the best sermon I ever heard. I mean, literally, we just got over. We're walking out, right, to go get lunch or something. Bye. So great. So, what was your favorite part? He's like, man, I don't know. It's just so much. I don't even remember. I said, just, just, just one thing. What's the, what's the one thing? He said, ah, you know, I remember one point in the sermon, he like said, bro, or something like that. That was cool. I said, yeah, okay, that was cool. You know, I said, uh, what, what, uh, what, do you remember the, the text that he talked about from the Bible? And he's like, I don't know. You know, uh, now listen, I think this guy was really a believer. But there, there is just so much immaturity that they can be there and get the hype and get excited and they're not really digested. And so we're having, we have to train them. You know, I've got one guy that I meet with and I'll, you know, I went to church and it was a great sermon. Oh, it was about, and he always has to say, let me pull out my notes. And it drives me crazy. I'm like, you can't even remember something without looking at your notes. But then I have to say, at least he took notes, praise the Lord, right? And at least he knows where the notes are. And he's willing to pull them out and read them. And then this is another follow-up question that I use with my disciples and I use with my kids, right? They think, okay, I got the right answer. Now, Daddy, let me have a Sprite. You know, and I'll say, now, how can you apply that in your personal life? I don't know, you know. But it's like (laughs) lovingly, gently, asking questions, interactive, pushing the truth down into the heart. Third point, be intimate. What's the pitfall here? Too much distance. Too much safe distance. So I can remain the professional Christian that has it all put together, and I am the model. Come look at me. Okay, We talked about this a little bit with the guys. Is there a place for prudence in how much you share with your students? There absolutely is. Right? So... You're married, you just had a big fight with your spouse, probably don't show up to D group and tell them all the gory details. Because you'll probably be sharing as much of your spouse's sin as you are of your sin, and she, at least my wife, doesn't appreciate that. Okay? I've tried it before. But here's what I'd also say. I think most of us, we tend to err far too much on the side of prudence. And nine times out of ten, I don't think it's as much about prudence as it is about pride. That we want to keep our image up. That we want to keep our best foot forward. So please hear me. Is there a place for prudence? Yes. But when in doubt, it's kind of like, is there a place for practical planning? Yes. But when in doubt, be loving. Is there a place for prudence? Yes. But when in doubt, be vulnerable. You know, just because I've been in ministry... For a long time, every once in a while, I'll kind of do these surveys. I've, I've shared a couple of them with y'all and asked people, what was the thing that was the most helpful? Or I've never had somebody say, oh, that book we read one time. Never had anybody say that. I have had people say, you being an adult professional minister, being willing to share your own sin struggles pretty vulnerably with us was pretty powerful for me. It made me know, if you're coming into the light, I can come into the light. I can share about stuff. It was breakthrough. Be willing to do that, Okay. So in conclusion, in conclusion of everything I've said the past two days, here's the one biggest pitfall in discipleship. Too much of me and not enough of Jesus. Going back to where we began. It's always got to be, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Follow me, but only insofar as I'm following Christ. Right? He must increase, I must decrease. And I if you could only model one thing for them, model repentance. 
model how to respond for your sins. I, I think, and this I can't point to an exact verse on this, so this is a little bit of speculation on heart. But I think if you have to find just one way to measure Christian maturity, here is the way. How do people respond to their sins? It's not do they sin, yes or no. Everybody sins. It's not even what sin do they do. It's more how do they respond to their sin. Is there a real right sense of grief over their sin? Contrition. I hate it. The right kind of guilt and shame. But then, do they go to their Father and they confess their sin and they repent of their sin and they receive the grace of the Lord and they don't wallow in self-pity and they really feel forgiven and then they move on and they fight for personal holiness moving forward. Does that make sense? And guys, model that for your disciples. Here's what I've been struggling with. Here's why I hate it. Here's why I feel terrible. Here's how I'm trying to repent. Here's how I'm believing the gospel. Here's how I'm preaching the gospel to myself. And here's how I'm fighting for holiness moving forward practically in the future. Now, basically this has all been based off of the discipleship of Christ. Why haven't I made this point up until now? It's because, well, Christ didn't have any uh, sin to repent of the model for us, right? And yet, he didn't have any of his own shame, but there's a sense in which he had to share in our shame when he went to the cross. And that's what you see here in the Garden of Gethsemane. I mean, think about it. This is God in the flesh saying to his disciples, I am so overwhelmed. I want to die. My soul is troubled to the point of death. Teach a seminary class, this little seminary in Birmingham on Christology, the doctrine of Christ. And here's always the interesting thing you have to wrestle with because you're like, Jesus in his humanity felt such a high level of concern, such a high, that, but it didn't ever cross the line into sinful worry. Such a high level of uh, being down, but it didn't cross the line into like despair. You understand what I'm saying? But it's like, whatever the line is that you can go up to of negative emotions and not cross into being sinfully. I think he had it because he's bearing the weight of our sins on his back and he didn't even bring all the nine disciples into it why? maybe he thought they couldn't handle it but he brought the three into it and it stuck with them and so guys if he was willing to be that vulnerable that transparent I mean and literally on the cross he stripped naked before the whole watching world there's no more vulnerability than that take our sin I ought to be able to check my pride at the door and talk to some 19 year old brand new Christian about how I'm struggling because for some of them that will be a life saving event practically oh you struggle too but you're still getting grace and fighting okay there's hope let me pray God we've looked at so much over the last few days and I do pray that we'd all come out of this and be better practical disciples. but mainly I pray that we'd all come out of this and we'd be more in love with Jesus adoring Jesus, worshiping Jesus enjoying Jesus and then uh, becoming like Jesus being transformed from one degree of glory to the next and overflowing and that when people are around us it's like they get a little bit of the smell of Jesus They could look at us, but look through us and look past us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And there really would be a sense in that 
He is discipling all these people through us by His Spirit. Bless the work of our hands for your glory. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching. Thank you.